You are listening to Subro on the Go, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor's Subrogation and Recovery Practice Group, with discussions and perspectives on emerging trends, developments, and best practices. Now let's get started with your hosts, Dave Briscoe and Joe Rich. All right, welcome everybody to another episode of Subro on the Go. Uh, I am joined today again by our regular uh, host, Joe Rich, from our Miami office. And we're continuing to do these once a month, but we did miss last month uh, due to some technical difficulties with the podcast platform. Our apologies to all of our listeners who have said they are waiting for a new episode. And by all of our listeners, I mean my mom and Joe's mom. But, uh, but in all seriousness, we're back to doing these once per month. Thank you for the support. And today's topic is uh, several mailbags. So normally we focus uh, on a specific topic for the entire duration of the podcast. But today we're going to be reading select questions that we received from our listeners on a variety of several topics. Um, so let's get going with our first question. Uh, this one, Joe, you got this question from John from Connecticut. How do you explain to friends and family or the insured what subrogation is? So, uh, so how's everybody doing? Thanks for the intro, Dave. Uh, glad to be back. So with, with this question, uh, recently my wife and I watched the Friends reunion show on HBO Max and we're as a as a goal going back through all the old episodes of Friends and anybody who's ever watched the show knows that one of the characters Chandler Bing has this job that nobody knows what the job is right everybody tries to guess at it during the course of the series or sort of uh, tries to say what he does well that's how I kind of feel about subrogation like my wife always misses the mark when she tells people what I do um, I believe her exact phraseology is something with insurance, and then she just kind of like throws her hands in the air. Right. So uh, when I explain it to friends and family, I say, look, what we do is, I mean, let's be honest, you know, we're the engine that drives, drives the world. I mean, we're behind the scenes in a lot of things. Um, Subro is a big part of the insurance industry. Um, I preface it by saying, look, we have a lot to do with premiums. We have a lot to do with um, how risks are written. And really what we're doing is we're making sure that if you have a loss event, uh, I use the house fire all the time. You have a fire in your house and your carrier pays you for that loss. Well, we make sure if there's a responsible party out there, a manufacturer or a contractor that caused the loss, that they're the ones that are ultimately bearing the burden of it and paying the carrier back. And, you know, it's, it's like uh, it's an insurance cycle, you know, and it's a good thing. It helps people with their premiums. And I don't know if, if people buy into it, Dave, after I give them that explanation or whether they're they're still looking at me. Um, there's often crickets. I guess it's just, uh, you know, the way it goes. I, I don't know if you have any other experience with it. Yeah, well, I love the Friends reference. I think Transponster was the uh, uh, <laughs> Rachel's answer. Yeah, to what... that, was, that was the answer, but uh, that was the answer in the show when they were playing right. their Jeopardy game. Which was wrong. But, <laughs> but it, that's what it's like. Like They're like, I know it's something with law, but I, I don't know. Yeah. You know. Oh, well, uh, yeah, I've got a response, which is it's a great question um, because it is difficult to explain. I was We were at a wedding, and, and somebody asked about what we do, and, and she was a lawyer, too, so she explained what kind of law she does. And then she says, oh, yeah, and, and he works for insurance companies after they have to pay to rebuild a home after a fire. And, and I was like, that's it? That's, I mean you know, I'm so passionate about this and we love what we do and that's all you're giving me here. There's so much more to that. So I'm like, you either tell them, you know, I do wildfire litigation, which has dominated my life for a few years now, or you got to have the acronym CSI somehow come out of your mouth at some time during the explanation. Cause it's, it's really neat, 
you know, what we all do as several professionals, and I say we, I mean, like everybody, the several specialists, the adjusters, the several attorneys, the experts, we're all working as a team on these cases. And I say it's like, you know, the TV show CSI because a building burns down to the ground and we go in with our investigators and we help interview witnesses, look for clues that are microscopic and help prove what caused this terrible incident. And we hold, as you said, the responsible party accountable. Um, and so I hype it up as this amazing job. And my wife kind of looks at me and rolls her eyes and says, you're not that cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, uh, you know, it's, it, I think so much of what I do, I mean, is products liability work yeah. and construction defect work. Yeah. You know, I, I think, you know, it really is, it, it really is complex, um, but people don't want to hear that. You right. know, they, after like two minutes of you getting past the insurance introduction, they're like, okay, what was that again? Right, right. You know, so, but we, we know it's so, cool. Uh, uh, yeah, we know it's cool. Um, so what's the next question? Yeah, so Bobby from Tucson wrote, what are some strategies when the defense carrier stubbornly will not pay on a clear liability case? There's a, let me just jump in. There's an easy answer. Call uh, my cousin Vinny. He's a great attorney. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it's it's a great question because it is frustrating, right? Where, you know, we, we get these cases come in and, and you we, we walk through the investigation process and we really put a bow on it and we feel like we've got, you know, a case where we should be paid 100% of our damages and then the defense is just, you know, balking at it or, or not stepping up and paying and, you know, really, I mean, I take two approaches. One is just obviously, you know, reaching out early and often um, and just creating a roadmap for the defense. Here's how this ends bad, badly for you. We don't make it personal. It's not threatening, but it's like, this is the process I'm going to go through and here's how it ends. Um, and then use pressure points along the way if, if they don't come to the table. Um, I think we'll, we'll end up doing another program on, on pressure points later, but things like offers to compromise and different ways to, to, um, to put pressure on defendants where they can be liable for attorney's fees if they don't step up and resolve a case. Um, but otherwise, it's, to me, it's pushing the case forward by taking depositions and getting a trial date. That'll really bring the defense to the table when, when you're getting a stubborn defendant that won't pay. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, to give kind of a real-world example, um, I've recently had this come up in a fairly large litigation where I would view it as irrefutable evidence of liability to the point of, you know, without giving too much away about what case it is, of having it like captured on video, right? Like there's just no, this is not like a products case. This is a case where, you know, a, a one project next door to our building did something that damaged our building and it's like literally captured in real right. time, right? But they are disputing liability and it's infuriating i'll be honest because we we like not only have photos and videos of the event happening but there is just literally no liability defense so what i did in this instance is when they would not agree to liability and, and focus the case on damages or early mediation i crafted a what i would consider a carefully worded letter sent to the defense attorney and it was a letter that I knew that they weren't going to respond to, but I basically said, look, you know, here's the clear evidence of liability. You're fighting the case and requiring us to spend all this money on depositions and experts. And just know that in six to eight months, when we start to mediate this case um, at mediation, we're not going to give you any discount for your litigation costs and, you know, kind of like lay it out to them like that. Because then you could pull that out down the road and you could say, look, we knew we didn't need to do all this work, but your defense attorney wanted us right. to, 
right? Yeah. You know, and, and it, I mean, does that, is it persuasive? I don't know. You know, does it create a lot of issues for you at, at a mediation? Maybe. But, you know, you got to keep the pressure on people and you got to have them constantly second guessing whether the defense strategy is really the, the best way to go. Well, about and it. your point about the letter is really well taken because sometimes I think we're, we are very concerned that. Uh, the information is not getting to the defense carrier properly or that it's being, you know, read through the, you know, eyes of the defense attorney and, and translated differently. So when you put it all in a letter that in a way that you feel like it has to be put in front of the defense carrier, um, at least it's getting the arguments and in, in your version of the case in front of the right, you know, right person who's paying for the claim. So I think your, your point is well taken. Yeah, I mean, look, if you've got a good case, I think you take it to them and you yeah. lay it out and you say, here's my good case and this is why you should settle now. But if you don't, you know, and I have to spend all this money, don't think you're going to show up and tell me at mediation that you had to spend $100,000 to defend the case and you can't pay me that money because you defended the case. Right. Yep. You know, uh, so what do we have next? All right. These What's are fun. Next? So uh, Brandon from Hanford, I have a flood case to our insurance condo that came from an upstairs unit but we have not been able to get access. What can we do? So um, let me let me start on this one. I have a lot of condo claims in South Florida. This is actually a pretty common occurrence. Um, mechanical system failures, water losses, whether it's sprinkler system or water lines or you know toilet supply lines or pressure reducing valves, you name it, it happens quite frequently. Um, the first thing you gotta do is you got to figure out, do you have a claim for a unit or do you have a claim for the association? If you, your claim is a subro claim where the insured is the association, contact the property manager, um, find out who owns the unit, who the tenant of the unit is. And I would say 50% of the time, the property management will probably have insurance information if it's a tenant or maybe even if it's an owner so that you would find out who that unit's insurer is. And uh, just keep after it that way and try to identify who the party is, get those people a letter. Um, it's a different type of letter than a typical notice letter that you would send out if it's a property that you control, Dave. You know, it's more of a proactive letter, like we want you to preserve the evidence and we want to get access. Like those are the two big key things you want to ask for. Um, find out from the building maintenance staff everything they know about the loss. If you've got adjacent units, like a unit below, you know, floor a few down or next to it that suffered water damage, do the same thing. Reach out to the property management. Have your insured contact them and say, you know, I'm a member of the association and I want the information on the unit owner. Um, this may be just off topic, but I would also request um, in both scenarios, the bylaws and the condo docs or any rules that they have. You'd be surprised, but... Um, some condos have specific rules or requirements, um, and sometimes, a couple of times, I've had cases where the bylaws have stated that if you cause a water release, you're responsible for it if you affect neighboring units. So those, those are just... Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more on the documenting your efforts uh, portion of this because it could become an issue down the road where you want to show um, the efforts you made. And, and so to me, anytime I'm dealing with a neighbor property fire or a neighbor, um, neighbor water loss where you're trying to get access to somebody else's property, I usually do the three little pigs analogy where, you know, first we knock nicely, little pig, little pig, let me come in. And, and it's this very friendly, we're on the same team. There's a loss that came from your property and we're here to help figure out what happened. And it's in your best interest 
as the owner to have us come in and help figure that out because you may have losses as well that you're help trying to investigate um, the cause of the, the claim for, or you may have a liability exposure and you need to see if it's a product or construction issue or someone else's fault, and we can come and join in that effort. Um, but if that doesn't work, you know, the, the, the uh, knocking nicely doesn't work, then the wolf comes in and blows the house down. And, and I don't mean that literally, but I mean we change from the polite, you know, let us come in to really hammering them with the laundry list of NFPA citations, case law citations, and duties and obligations they have to let us have access that, you know, they're exposing themselves to liability if they don't uh, give us access. Uh, let's see. All right. Uh, fourth question here. Eric from Clovis asks, we received a late claim involving water damages to our insurance business from a city water main failure, but the main was repaired before we could document it or collect the failed evidence. Are we barred from pursuing a claim? That's a really good one. So this, this lines up for me in California and the states that practice inverse condemnation, I'll speak to it from a California standpoint. This is, um, I, I, love, I, I love this question because so many times when it comes to inverse condemnation, there are good cases out there where people, um, several specialists may shut them down prematurely thinking that, oh, it's another frustrating scenario where, you know, the evidence wasn't saved. And so in, in this example that Eric gave, there's a water main failure, but we don't know why it failed because the evidence was completely destroyed. And normally you would say that's a closer subro. But when you find out that the government owns the, you know, it's a government-owned uh, item that caused the fire, in this case a water main, you now have an inverse condemnation cause of action, which is essentially something, an instrumentality or item for public use caused damage to private property. And so city water mains, just like power lines that we read about in the news, those are for public use. And if they cause damage, you don't have to show in an inverse condemnation state like California, you don't have to show that the government entity was negligent in the installation, the operation, or the maintenance of that line. Um, you just have to show that your insurance property was damaged from this public improvement, this water line. Um, and, and they are strictly liable for that. So even if we've had plenty of cases where we didn't have photos or evidence, it was all thrown out, but we were still able to make a very nice recovery. So you always seem to like, like throw the great <laughs> California tort yes. law in my face in every podcast. So I just have to point that out initially. Um, as I sit in my office here in Miami and, and I can actually see um, South Beach, I'm thinking, you know, in Florida, we don't have that type of inverse combination law, but uh, the type of losses like these I've seen a lot are actually flooding losses. So, for instance, in Miami Beach, um, there are these p large pumping systems that are designed to handle heavy rains, high tides, and floods. And I've had a few cases where these pumping systems have failed, and we've gotten the cases late, um, and we're, we're sort of stuck without, like, our typical investigation right you're like oh my god what do i do with this i know this event happened well in florida with public entities um they have sunshine laws which means they have to keep track of things when when these things happen and there is a probably a lot of public information available to you and in one of my cases i ended up um, getting documentation from the city of miami beach that showed that they had um, they had these six pumps that two of them went down during a heavy rainstorm and the backup generator for the pumping system didn't click on. And there were actually like like city reports discussing what had happened. And I was able to get a, get a hold of them through a Freedom of Information Act request. And then I even found out that there was like an emergency alert system where they were texting residents 
And they basically explained in these messages what had happened and how they had failed to maintain the pumping system. So it turned, it initially came in and I was like, you know, what am I going to do with this? Like, right. how do I build this case up into a very, very good case? Um, I won't get into the tort limitations <laughs> in the state of Florida because that could be maybe a whole other podcast we should think about doing when you're pursuing governmental entities. But, you know, there there could be good That's information. That's such a good point, there. right? I mean, our, we, we work so hard to say subros made or broken in the first 48 hours of a loss because we want to emphasize how important it is to do work on the front end of a case. But it, your point's well taken that, you know, there's so much further discovery that has to take place in any subrogation case that, you know, your case can continue to get stronger um, with a lot more effort as time passes. Um, all right, last last question here. We're getting close to around time. So last question, Karen from St. Louis asks, I have a case involving a fire from a product, but there is no recall. Is that a problem? <laughs> Just scream it out. <laughs> No, no, it's not. Um, so let me let me start jump right on this one. So, you know, recalls only happen um, when you sort of get critical mass in the sense of there's public knowledge, there's public reporting of fires from products. It's not the end all be all of whether a product is defective. Um, and in a lot of cases, um, you know, you're not going to have a product recall. But what you might find um, are complaints. I'm, you know, you might find that uh, people have complained to the CPSC, the Consumer Product Safety Commission, or that um, this specific manufacturer, their prior model was recalled. Um, I mean, there, there could be recall associated information out there, even if you don't have a specific recall for your product. But it's not the end all be all because in most states like like Florida, I mean, look, you have to prove a manufacturing defect or a design defect, and you can prove that without having right. a recall, right, Dave? It's not really, it's nice to have, you know, it's nice to have the CPSC say, hey, we worked with this manufacturer and they agreed that there's this problem with this product. Um, it's really nice, right? But no, it's I couldn't not agree necessary. more. And and not only do you not have to have a recall, you don't necessarily, depending on the jurisdiction, have to have uh, known the exact defect that caused the loss. Because you know, even California, the Supreme Court's acknowledged that fires destroy evidence, and so you might not be able to prove exactly what caused that particular product to fail. Um, you know, we could spend a whole another podcast on on this topic, but but just briefly, we do. I want to reconcile that line, which is a, a difficult line to draw between. You know, NFPA frowning on negative corpus, which is a process of elimination um, uh, system, versus uh, proving product liability with circumstantial evidence, which is the malfunction theory, which courts allow. And so, for example, if a fire starts in the motor compartment of a microwave, um, then at that the user doesn't access uh, the area where the motor is, where it failed. Um, there's localized arcing in there. It's not uh, very old, and, and uh, but we don't know exactly what the defect was. In my opinion, and, and where I practice, that's plenty um, to prove a product liability case with circumstantial evidence under the malfunction theory. You're, you're not just saying, hey, it's not the coffee maker that started the fire and the only other item in the area of origin is the microwave. You're not just doing that. That's negative corpus. You're doing, you're taking steps further to show why it's a localized failure in the microwave, even if you don't know the exact defect. So great question from Karen. And I, 
So is that it? I, I think we've got all of them that we had time for. Uh, we had a few others that we'll save for, for next time. Keep the questions coming. Um, this was fun. We're going to get back to doing a few more on specific topics going forward. But I think, you know, maybe uh, every few months we'll do another several mailbag because um, these are fun and we love getting questions from uh, our listeners. And so send them in and we'll, we'll, maybe we'll be able to include you on a future several mailbag podcast. All right. Thanks, Dave. And thanks, everybody, again, for listening in. Um, and uh, thanks, we'll catch you guys on the next podcast. Thanks. Bye.